Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We have veteran investment sales broker and founding partner of Aerial Property Advisors, Victor Sozio, here with us today. Victor, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate this. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Of course. So before we talk business, give us a little rundown of your background. So where are you from and why did you get into this industry? Sure. Well, I was born in the Bronx um, to my parents who emigrated here from Italy. Uh, we lived there until I was 15. Uh, we moved to uh, Lower Westchester. Mm-hmm. Um, when I graduated high school, I was 17 years old. Um, and I enlisted in the United States Marine Corps Reserve. Um, and looking back at it now, that was probably the first time I had to push someone to sign a contract. Right. Uh, my parents specifically, uh, the reason was that you have to be 18 to enlist in the military. Uh, if you're 17, you need a guardian's um, sign off. And I campaigned for years. They knew it was something I was set on. My recruiter campaign came to the house and campaigned, but my mom was staunchly opposed. Mm. Uh, and ultimately the deal that we worked uh, was trying to get the best of both worlds, that I would enlist in the Marine Corps Reserve, but I would also go to college. And you know, credit to her, it was a critical juncture in my life, a pivotal decision. She did what she thought was in my best interest, and I do think that it set me on the right path for the future. Awesome. So after high school, I went to boot camp. I went to School of Infantry. Um, after School of Infantry was over, I came back to New York. I started doing my reserve training, which is one week in the month, two weeks in the summer, and started going to Marist College. And Marist was a great college, great experience. Uh, was having a lot of fun there, probably too much fun. <laughs> um, and then September 11th happened. And, and our unit got activated, uh, which ended up being in totality for a few years. Right. Um, it included a, a deployment uh, to Kuwait and Iraq. Um, when we came back, I decided to uh, finish my degree at Manhattan College. Um, and at Manhattan College, one day I was strolling past Career Services Department. I saw a posting for an internship at Massey Knackle. I applied, and that was my uh, entrance into the commercial real estate world. Awesome. Great. And so you served as a corporal um, all throughout college. Can you kind of walk us through how this experience kind of shaped you as an individual and as a businessman from that point on? Sure. I, I, and a lot of the principles that are instilled in the military, I think, can be applicable to all facets of life. I mean, you know, discipline, clearly, you know, and I needed that discipline, right? I needed it from high school. I was kind of, you know, not, not floundering, but I, I needed some structure and, and the discipline was was great. But the ability to adapt or building the skills that allow you to adapt to the terrain in any given instance is critical, mm. right? And, and that's something that, you know, we talk about as a company all the time, especially now when the market changes at the drop of a hat. Um, that's a, a critical skill. Resilience is a huge, huge thing that you learn in the military and, and you need in life, right. absolutely need in life. Um, you definitely need it in the military because sometimes, you know, you, they send you places or do things that are way outside of your control. So the resilience was there and ultimately the camaraderie and relationships as well, right? You know, some of the camaraderie you build in those circumstances are, it's hard to compare in the real world, right. you know, uh, but if you think about our business, we're a relationship business, right? We talk about it at Ariel all the time, right? We, yeah, there's transactions and that's how we make our, our money, but more than anything else, this is a relationship business and you do build those relationships in the military as well like 
right now in a week we have a 20 year anniversary coming up oh, wow. uh, from when we went into iraq and okay. uh, we're all looking forward to seeing each other and hanging out awesome great and um so when you interviewed for your position at massey knackle with shimon shkuri um how did you kind of connect with him and show him that you were the right person for the job um yeah, it was my second interview there. I interviewed with HR first, and then it was Shimon. And, and I think my partner now, Ivan Petrovic, might have been in that meeting as well. And we did have a shared connection with the military. Mm -hmm. he, he was an IDF, and, and I think that helped. But ultimately, I just remember being sincere, mm -hmm. right? That I was hungry. I wanted to work hard. I, I didn't know anything, right? right? I mean, I, I knew a little bit about commercial real estate, but I really didn't know anything, right? And and you communicated that to him. And I communicated that to him, but and that I wanted a chance and I would work hard. And, and ultimately, they offered the internship. Awesome, perfect. I'm I'm grateful, you know, to this day that uh, that I started in that internship position because you know what, that was really the ground floor of this industry. Right. I was in the back room, you know, for those who remember Massey Nackle, we had a, a copy room in the back, and I would do the postcards and you know, the mailers and, you know, re you know, really learn from the bottom, our industry. And I think that was valuable for me. So Massey Nackle really set the right foundation for you for the rest of your career. Absolutely. Awesome. Massey Nackle was a great atmosphere, great people to learn from um, and, and absorb. It was very transactional, which in this industry is huge. There's no substitute for experience right. in this industry, right? There's so many young, talented people in our industry that want to get into the industry, but the transaction volume, you know, f being in the trenches over and over again on these deals, that's important. And what Massey Nackle provided was a lot of transaction volume, and that was critical. Awesome. Understood. And I want to understand where you kind of first developed your sense of business. So if you had to think back to the first time you remember selling something, what kind of comes to mind? Um, well, first thing I remember, uh, um, the first assignments I was on, I would take a lot of time just practicing my pitch mm. right writing it down in a book thinking through it really gaming it out right and, and and even before that i would first try to be as knowledgeable as possible right understand the product that i'm selling understand the comps understand what's going on in the area then i would write my pitch then when i had a call list or i thought about who i was calling i would try to find out as much as i can about that person right before i called right and in my mind again i would game it out and game it out again and when then I started calling and communicating with these people, then my approach was I would have my pitch. I, I always remember I wanted to be brief, right? These were important people, sophisticated people. They didn't know me from anything, right? So I, I remember always being, I got to be brief. Say my name, what, you know, where I'm calling from, who, who I am, right? Why I'm calling. Just get it out there quickly right. and see if they engage. And that worked for me. And, you know, I was always very again, sincere, because, you know, there's, there's sometimes this misconception in our industry that you have to kind of sell, and sell something convince. that maybe not be completely truthful right. or, or hide the facts. My approach was totally different. I, I actually, and to this day, I think even if a, a, a listing is a higher price than most of the market, there might, there's probably someone or out there that has a specific value proposition Definitely. or an angle is a perfect fit for it. So again, I just try to be as knowledgeable as I can on the details, what the different approaches can be, what the business plan can be, communicate it effectively and honestly, and, and that ultimately worked. Perfect. Awesome. And we talked before this about how in this current market, uh, you have to be creative with every deal that you put together. Can you walk us through a deal um, that kind of stands out to you where you had to think outside of the box? 
put it together? Sure. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about I mean, every deal right now. We have to think outside the right. box. But um, there was a recent deal that we sold, infamous deal, up on, on one Bennett in, in Washington Heights. It was originally done 10 years ago. Mm. The developer um, who assembled great piece of land, very, very difficult terrain, really a mountain of bedrock. You look at it today, it's still a mountain of bedrock. And but they also did a deal with the adjacent synagogue, right? And took their air rights, were supposed to develop the synagogue for them. Things went horribly wrong, right? The recession happened. The developer, you know, probably took on more than they can mm. execute on. Uh, fast forward 10 years later, we were brought in to sell it from the bank that ultimately took it back. And the synagogue was still there and the synagogue really needed to find a home, right? But they were expecting the home to be in this new development. And from marketing it, we realized this is not going to happen, right? Like, you know, this, we, we kept trying, banging our head, trying to get a developer with the, the, you know, to, to satisfy the objectives of the synagogue. And finally, when we said, you know what, let's take a step back. Let's, let's get a bunch of different schematics of what can be done here. Let's start talking to the board at the synagogue about mm -hmm. really what their options are and game it out with them. Right. And that was, something that's, that, that was really helpful because when they saw, okay, you know, when the market saw this is what can be built uh, with clarity and, and here's the challenges with the terrain and the bedrock. Mm -hmm. And when the synagogue started to realize, you know what, maybe we're better just getting a check and getting our own new home. You know, that's was finally what we needed to do to get it um, across the finish line. Understood. So, but again, like all, all these deals, you have to think outside the box, right? I mean, we have, you know, we deal with some complex assignments in the affordable housing world. So, you know, there's a lot of time. Beautiful thing about our industry is there's experts in all different fields, right? So, and it's okay to not know everything, right? right? And it's okay to leverage the relationships of the people that do to help you execute and collaborate as a team to, to execute. 100%. Awesome. And speaking of the affordable housing um, sector, can you walk us through the uh, 1904 affordable unit portfolio that you sold in South Bronx for $350 million? How did this come about and how did you go about finding the right buyer for this? Great question, uh, and I love that portfolio. The The seller was PRC, um, and is actually somebody that we dealt with for, for many years. Great family-run organization. Um, they, they had this portfolio, actually generational. You know, it was a generation before. They had this great portfolio in the Bronx, predominantly project-based Section 8 um, assets. And they knew that we have a pretty good presence and expertise in the affordable world, but these were complex assignments, mm. right? So they were getting solicited from people all the time wanting to buy their assignments, but these were GP positions in some cases, you know, in, in one case they were still being placed in service from a, a mix and match family deal. Um, so when the solicitation started to ramp up and the numbers started getting to a point where they're like, Hey, you know what? Maybe we, we should consider yeah, selling disposing. it. They called us yeah. to analyze it. And credit to the team we have at Ariel. I mean, Remy Mandel, who's a director of research and sales, you know, we worked hard and other analysts as well. We worked for months to analyze it, right? And what we found out is that, you know, for these type of portfolios of that scale, there's accounting firms that will charge an arm and a leg just to analyze it, right? right? We did it for free. It took us months, but we did it for free because we wanted the business. And after we analyzed it, we talked through it and, you know, really understood it. That's when we we listed it. We went out to market, you know, and 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 it was a a process that I'll tell you. Even though they were complex, I think it 
showed how much demand there is in the affordable housing mm. world. You know, okay. not only from private capital, but from institutions that have mission-driven capital, ESG capital, whatever the case might be. You know, again, for something this complex and nuanced, when we set out, we said, you know, it was a $300 plus million deal. We said, okay, if we have five or so real qualified bids, yeah. like real qualified, like just to understand these portfolios take an immense amount of time, right? If we have five qualified bids, we'll be happy. When the process was all said and done, we had about 15, right? And wow. Shimon and I, you know, we, we looked at each other and was like, wow, this just shows wow. you that, you know, there's the buyer pool for, for this product type has really exploded over the course of the last 15 to 20 years. Definitely, 100%. And uh, the $340 million, seven, uh, seven building uh, multifamily package in Savoy Park. How did you go about sourcing and executing on this deal? So that one was a little bit different than, than the normal assignment. Um, and, and you know what? I'll even go a few years before that and where it really started because we were in a meeting, we were pitching assignment, a typical like 40-ish million dollar assignment. But at that meeting, uh, a property down on Cherry Street came up, 275 Cherry Street. And it was project-based Section 8. They tried to sell it for, you know, 280 million. Mm. They didn't sell it. Mm. But, you know, they gave us kind of a lead and said, oh, you know, if you have an ideas for it, let us know. We ended up doing that deal, right? And, you know, I think that gave us as a firm and, uh, and as people confidence, like, hey, we can play in this space. Mm -hmm. We could compete here. We yeah. understand this product as good as anybody. You know, we could do this. So now fast forward, you know, we did some other bigger deals in the affordable world. Now fast forward to, to 2016, I think it was, right? Um, and L&M and Savannah took back this property. You know, Vantage was the one that had it before. They put an Article 11 mm -hmm. on it, um, and they were ready to either recap or sell. Um, a few, maybe a year prior to that, we started establishing a great relationship with Fairstead. Um, and... When they were ready to sell it, they let us know we have a great relationship with L&M and we competed for it, mm. but we didn't win it, I see. right? You know, and, and, you know, I don't blame them too much, but um, it was because it was a recap and a sale. And, and frankly, I had the idea that, you know, you want max proceeds on something, you probably got to sell it, right. right? You want, you know, recap is hard to get max proceeds on something. So they were about to list it and, and I have a good friend, Eben Ellertson at L&M and I spoke to him and I said, listen, I think I have a great buyer for this. Mm. This is not something we typically do outside of an exclusive assignment. Talk to them, see what they're willing to do, run your process. At least you get a data point, right. you know? So they did that. We got a great offer from Fairstead. And what's great about Fairstead and even to this day is like they're, they're able to move quickly when they want something. And, and, and the institutions now as well. But back then, the institutions, they wanted due diligence, you know, they, they needed 30, 60 days, et cetera. They gave an offer that they could execute on quickly. Didn't, you know, they said, thank you, we're gonna run our process. But we we kept on it, kept on it, you know, kept kind of keeping tabs on it. And I had a feeling that when it was all said and done, their price was good, but especially their terms were good. Mm. So they ran their process at the at the end, they came back to us, we negotiated the deal, and the rest is history. Awesome. Perfect. And what have you learned about commercial real estate investment from selling over five billion dollars in assets throughout your career? Um, how do you approach acquisition for your own portfolio now? Well, what I learned is it's um, it's a roller coaster business, mm -hmm. right? And, and you, that's why it, it's important to build the right habits and systems, 
that you know you don't get too high you don't on the wins you don't get too low on the losses my wife you know great to have a great support system too right because my wife uh, you know again giving her credit she's been great you know she knows when i have a great win she's like great you know but she's not like you know going ecstatic over the moon but and when i have a big loss she says that's the business right right? and she's absolutely right that is the business it ebbs and flows it's a roller coaster you just got to stick stick with it build the right systems and habits to make sure that you always have, you incrementally increase that pipeline, mm. right? And that's, as brokers, we need to have a good pipeline at all time. And that pipeline means leads coming in mm. for new business, assignments that have a legitimate chance to get to contract, right. realistic sellers with motivation, and deals that are in contract and ready to close, right? So you got to maintain that pipeline. Um, in terms of how I approach investments, for myself, first off, I don't like to do anything that would conflict with our, mm. our, our business. You know, we put a lot of energy in, into building Ariel and we don't want to do anything that, you know, would show that we conflict. So never a deal that we sell would we invest in. Um, and when I am considering something, it's always on the passive side. I know I don't have enough time right. to run a deal. It's got to be passive. So the deal has to make sense and the sponsor has to be um, credible and someone I have a good relationship with right. that I can call because nothing would make me more concerned than giving a slug as an investment. It goes into a black hole where you don't know what's happening. Right. Right. You know, I need someone that's going to communicate what's happening if we're going to put money out. And, and, and again, it's going to be passive. We can't run the deal 100%. at the time. So would you say to you, the, the operator is more important than the, than the asset itself? Um, I think they're equally important. Okay. You know, a deal needs to make sense, but sponsor, you know, they they, they go hand in hand. Got it. Okay. To me. And um, as a broker, how is selling affordable housing different from transaction on a fully um, free market building? How is this process kind of uh, different on your end? Um, the buyer pool is different. Mm. You know, the the nuances are way different, right? You know, selling a free market building is, you know, sometimes they have their own complexities as well, but it's pretty straightforward, right? Right. Affordable, there's so many different kinds of affordable, quote unquote affordable is a broad category that has many, many different product types in it. And I don't think I will ever be in the business long enough to understand every nuance of every product type in affordable world. And that's the beauty of it. That's why I love it so much is you're learning every day, right? Like every time you get an assignment, you can learn on it. And 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 the policies change all the time. So you really have to be on top of the policies, you know, what, how, what business plan could be implemented mm. for it. Another thing, which is a pitfall, is there's a lot of landmines in affordable housing, right? Whether it's consents, sometimes you need city, state agency consent, sometimes you need uh, tax credit investor consent, and you do your best to, to structure the deal accordingly. Mm. But even if you have a hard deposit, sometimes you can be six, eight months into a deal and it blows up, Got it. right? So there's there's an inherent kind of danger in dealing with the affordable world um, as well, but I love it, right? And, awesome. uh, and I, I think it does, it is more of a unique skill set, which, you know, I think is an advantage in, in our industry, Definitely. you know, so I, I love it. And, and you know what, it's a rewarding thing as well, right? You, you talk about PRC deal or, you know, we sold another big portfolio for Martin Dunn recently. And when you execute for the client, they're happy, but you also do a transaction where it goes from a good steward of the property 
to another good steward of the property mm. and they're implementing all these new initiatives to upgrade the property and, and enhance the build the community the, the, the building and, and the community yeah. for the tenants it's rewarding yeah right and sometimes you don't get that on the free market you know in a rent stabilized transaction as much definitely and when it comes to uh, development sites of affordable housing how do you go about presenting a site correctly to ensure that a buyer knows what they're getting into and this applies not only for affordable housing, but for for all developments. Right. I think you know you, you want to first. It starts with having a good baseline set of information, right? Whether it's a, a draft massing and zoning analysis, you really need to have somewhere to start. Every development is different, you know. And and even one Bennett, which I mentioned to you, we had five schematics from Michael Parlay, who's a great development consultant, by the way. And you know, but realistically, there could have been a hundred schematics, right? But you want to start. It's like you don't want to go too much, right? But you want to have a good baseline understanding of what can be built, what the zoning is. So you start with the massing and a, a zoning analysis. But then ideally, and not all, 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 all situations have this, but ideally you'll have third-party reports, mm. right? Because us as marketers and brokers, we want as much surety uh, of close as possible, right? And certainty of, ex certainty of execution in that contract. And it's hard to get that in the same way if you don't have some of those third-party reports. Definitely. So sometimes if we have clients that tell us, like, do you want a phase one on this? Yes, I do want a phase <laughs> one, right? Do you want a zoning analysis? Yeah, yeah, give me everything you have because I want to put it in a data room. I want to streamline the interest from the market. Right. So I could start lining up the options and understand, you know, what works, what doesn't, and, and, and make a deal there. Understood. Um, you know, and when it comes to for the affordable housing, we actually have some big sites for affordable housing that are earmarked for affordable housing. I think it's also understanding what is out there, mm. right? You know, what's the lay of the land for tax benefits, whether it's 420C or Article 11, right? What term sheets are available at HPD or mm. HDC? You know, if you're outside of the city and it's a state deal, what's what does HFA have available? Right. What are their priorities? Like, I think it's important to get as knowledgeable as possible uh, about what the options are for the develop, not only for your client, but for the developers. Understood. Got it. And uh, with the expiration of the 421A uh, tax exemption, how have you seen developer sentiment kind of shift with the government intervention? Um, does this still make sense for the most part for to build affordable housing in New York City? Well, to build affordable housing, it definitely does make sense. That's not the issue. The issue is the queue. To get into the queue and to, you know, from start to finish takes forever. Right. And it's fraught with, you know, roller coasters, just like our industry, right? You know, things change uh, at the drop of a hat and it's a tough tough execution uh, but it makes sense mm. right you know and, and we need it we need a ton of supply and what's happened with the 421a is a shame right and you know i'm hoping that a successor comes along soon because it's Change absolutely that. needed yeah. you see that development activity is is already dropping significantly you see that subcontractors are already the first kind of ones to start to feel the effect mm. uh, of development uh slowing down um so we absolutely need the 421a and and, and I'll go a step further, even for the one that we had that sunset back in June, they need to extend that timeline, right? Right, Because right now it's already tight to get into a new project, even if the, the 421A is preserved and turn it around and deliver a CFO by 2026, it's really tight. So in my, in my perspective, um, it will be good for the legislators to extend that extend deadline. It, yeah. And I think it's a layup, right? Why not extend the deadline? Just why make it that much harder? Uh, but we'll see what happens. Definitely. And how would you... Um how, how what advice would you give to new developers kind of navigating this world of government intervention if it's out of their control it's a great question you know and they talk about the triggers for stress and lack of control is, right. is one of the top ones right um you know i i would say to them 
to, and this is a saying we had in, in, in the military, like embrace the suck, right? right? Like <laughs> know that you're getting into something that, you know, there's a lot of things that are out of your control right. and just to expect it, right? And you, you will probably have dead deal costs over and over again, but you need to make a commitment if that's what you're going to do. Um, especially in affordable housing, you got to embrace the suck. You know, you got to you got to sign up for the blood, sweat, and tears that it's going to take you to get to Definitely. the end point. Right, Another and job. it's lucrative. You get there, it's lucrative, it's rewarding. You you know, it's 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 needed in the city, but you gotta you gotta be ready for the blood, sweat, and tears to to get there. So 100%. that's that would be my number one advice to them. Got it. And can you walk us through a deal that you were very confident in that didn't go as planned? What would you have done differently? Um. One that comes to mind is actually a small one um, in the pandemic that I thought would be an easy layup type of thing. So the pandemic happened and, you know, contract, hard contract, forgot hard contract didn't mean a thing, right? You know, things blew up left and right. Transactions really came to a standstill. But again, one of the benefits about being a broker is that you can go where there is where there is action. If there's action, you can go there, right? right. And And I remember what we did. We started selling easements for antenna income right you know because there was an institution that was buying them and there was a need you know there was people that were willing to sell they were paying good numbers so we started selling them and you know and right around that time there was like a five million dollar multifamily deal that popped up in hamilton heights and it was something i sold to the guy uh years ago we had a good relationship we always got along well and he told me you know i want to sell it you know my brother doesn't want to give an exclusive and, you know, but I, I really want to sell it. And, you know, do you think you could just slam dunk it for me? And I, I almost never take a non-exclusive assignment mm. unless it's like a Savoy, right? right? $340 million. I had an angle there, et cetera. But I thought it was easy. You know, I thought it was a slam dunk. I had a buyer right on, you know, ready that I knew would jump all over on the price. And he did, right? Fast forward a week and a half, two weeks, where I'm pushing to get the contract signed because it was at the finish line. And the seller, who I thought I had a good relationship with, that you know we had this kind of reciprocal trust factor, tells me he had another deal. Oh wow! And you know, two days later, he ends up going with that other deal, mm. even though the price was like minimally different, you know. And so that wasn't what was expected, right. and it just kind of reinforced to me why we have the business plan that we do, right? And even when it sometimes seems like it's a layup, it could go wrong. And for me, forget about the deal. It was a small deal, you know, commission wasn't huge or whatever. It was not a life changer in, in any sense right. of, of, the, of the word, but it's about credibility, right? And spending the time and working with, you know, people and relationships that you like. And, you know, it just reinforced to me, I'm not putting myself in that position, right. you know, again. So it kind of reminded you of your business principles of kind of having that ex exclusivity up front before you kind of go into it. Yeah, even when it seems like it's, you know, logical yeah. or whatever, you know, especially for a $5 million deal. You stick to your principles. You know, stick to the principles, right. yeah. 100%. And what have you learned about yourself since you've closed your first deal? Um, hmm. Since I closed my first deal, what have I learned about myself? I, I learn that um, this is a, a business that is immensely scalable, mm. right? You know, meaning whether it's brokering deals, right? Investing in deals, speaking intelligently to family members about their real estate issues or, you know, wherever the case might be. It, it's just so applicable in our everyday life, right? 
that what I learned is that, you know, yes, this is good for having a business and making money, but it's going to serve a lot of different purposes mm. outside of our core business, whether it's, again, investing or just being a, a resource for people throughout. And I, I think that more than anything else is is what resonates with us a lot is that we're, we're advisors, we're right. resources, right? Like, and, and that's why you always want to give the right, honest advice because I don't care about that immediate transaction. I want that relationship, relationship right? Yeah. You know, if that's a small, tra- you know, if that's a, a transaction and they have an offer that's 10% higher than what we think, you know, take it, right? Like we want to tell you the right advice mm. because we want your relationship for the long term, not that just immediate business. Definitely, 100%. And if you had to hone the skills of negotiation down, how would you kind of, what, what is the secret to effective negotiation? I, I think establishing trust and 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 rest what's the right word reciprocity right or is that even a word you know but reciprocal nature right, right. meaning like i give you information honest information you give me honest information yeah. right and i think that's a critical factor in a good negotiation establishing that kind of uh rapport understanding you know sometimes it's like a chess match mm. as well right like and and you have to sometimes think two steps ahead Definitely. Right. Like, you know, what what are we talking about now and what's this going to lead to next week? Right. After we see the property, after they review and everything else. Um, so, you know, and, and the other thing, and, and I, I say this to our people all the time, is before you just pick up that call, react and pick up that call and start talking, take a step back, take a breath. Yeah. Right. And think about what's going to happen in that conversation, because guess what? These conversations are important. Right. And one sentence could be the difference between making a deal and not making sure. a deal. Yeah. So, you know, I, I learned from some great people throughout, you know, and that, that's another beauty of our industry. There's so many great people that you learn from, whether it's people you work with or clients. And, you know, from some of them I, I've learned, be a little bit more deliberate. It's okay mm. to be a little bit more deliberate sometimes. Instead of rushing, we, we're always rushing. We want to do so much, so much. Sometimes it's okay to take step a, take a yeah. step back, think about it, and then sometimes like, use a partner as a sounding board. Right. That's hugely important to me, mm. right? Like there's so many times where we get stuck in our own head or lost in the sauce, right? You're in a transaction and, you know, you're feeling a certain type of way. You know, all, thing, all these factors come into play, right? And taking a step back and using somebody that you trust as a sounding board, right. you know, I, I think is, is, is hugely important. Awesome. So Perfect. all these things matter. Yeah. And how has the world of investment sales changed since you started? What worked for a broker 15 years ago, does that still work today? Absolutely not. You know, I mean, well, let me take a step back. It's evolved, right? And some of the principles still work, Remain, yeah. right? And some of them are completely different. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the main things that have changed from the beginning to now is due diligence, right? You know, now buyers have to be a lot smarter on what they're buying. When we, When I first got into the business, I would call people. All right, nine times, ten times, send me a contract. That's it. <laughs> right, nine times, ten times, you know, and 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 you would have a contract signed. Now, you know, because of legislation and the banks and everything else, you have to be a lot smarter and mm. doing your due diligence. And there's a lot of opportunities for these deals to fall apart, Definitely. right? So the you know you have to have many irons in the fire at any given point. Even you sent that contract out, there's no guarantee that's going to go yeah. through, yeah. right? You know, you have a law. Sending out a contract and getting a signed contract and then closing, there's a long road, you know, from start to finish. So you want to make sure you're tracking it the right way that you have, you know, before you get into a hard contract that you have multiple options for the client um, and that, you know, you you want to streamline their due diligence because you know that's going to happen now. These deals used to happen in a flash, yeah. right? A week, two weeks, we're signing a contract. Now, we just had a big deal, 
you know, that went under contract took months, months to to get into contract. And, you know, you want to pull your hair out, but you got to be patient. You got to go through the steps, but you got to have options along the way. Understood. And how much of investment sales brokerage comes down to understanding people and how much of it comes down to understanding the asset? Would you say it's an even mix of these two things that makes a good broker? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It is an even mix because I think about, especially when times are turbulent like they are now, the asset is important, but the relationship with that group is more important. Is important yeah. too, right? Like, you know, I think about the deals we do, and yeah, well, there's new entrants all the time, and you know, but you cultivate that relationship even with the new entrant, right. right? So you can't do a deal without a relationship, without establishing a relationship or having a pre- pre-existing relationship. And a lot of the deals we do are repeat, you know, whether it's a repeat seller or a repeat buyer, you know. Um, so it's 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 critically important. The deal too, right? Like the deal makes you know the deal has to stand yeah. on on its own, but the relationship has to be there to to get a deal done. Got it. Understood. And can you tell us a little bit about Aerial Property Advisors? Um, you mentioned in an interview that this was a natural progression for you getting into this. So walk us through why you decided to go off on your own and open a brokerage firm. Yeah. Well, so Ariel. I mean, just to give a little bit about Ariel. We're sixty plus people today. We have divisions on investment sales. They represent sellers of all the different product types in New York. We have a strong presence in multifamily and development sites. We have a capital services division that helps secure debt and equity, and that's national, right? They could do that across the country. And we have a very robust research department. That research department is very important to us. They're analysts, the graphic designers, mm-hmm. really the support staff that makes us as salespeople much more effective. When we were at Massey Knackle, it was about 2010, I actually think that we, you know, we survived the recession pretty well, you know, and I think we were beneficiaries of being in northern Manhattan mm. at the time. That was our territory and having a lot of affordable housing product and that still traded even, you know, during the recession. And in 2010, we continued to build a team. We, we continued to evolve as salespeople, both, you know, Shimon, myself, uh, Mike Tortorici, right. Ivan Petrovic, who's a, our operations partner, he is the engine, right? You know, he is a force multiplier to his truest sense, right? Um, but we looked around and we said, you know what? We want to spread our wings, right? And and we think we have the ability to originate throughout the city. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to do this on our own. So we started up Ariel and, you know, 12 years later, here we are today. And it was great, you know, and just having some, you know, and, and, Having something that, especially in this world now, that you know ebbs and flows all the time, that is small to midsize and nimble, mm. is 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 great for us, right? Because we were able to adapt to the terrain, right? We talked about adapting yeah. to the terrain. Much more easy to adapt to the terrain when you're small and nimble, sure, yeah. right? And, and that's really paid dividends for us. Our research department pays a ton of dividends, you know, because our our approach is. Let's be that resource. Let's give as much as we can, as you know, as much information. We we deal with information, right. you, know, you know, market intelligence and information. Let's give as much as we can, right, to establish those relationships and give back. And what happens is over time those seeds sprout, right? Like so, sometimes the deals that we're doing now were seeds that we play we we planted nine years ago, yeah. right? You know, and and that's okay, right? And and that was our model. That was our business model, right? Is let's be that resource let's have that research department let's track all the data let's mm. give these market reports and let's build a presence that way and now it's starting to really awesome you know show perfect and what do you look for in a new hire for your firm oh um <laughs> uh we look well certainly tenacity 
right? You need it in, in this industry. And I'll just say that, you know, it's hard to really truly get a sense of someone right. in an interview, right? Because we have so many great interviews. They come the highest form of education, great resume, right? You hire them. A week later, they move back to another state. Mm -hmm. It's not for them, right? You know, but what you want to see is somebody that can think on the fly, right? You know, can has the right energy, mm. right? We're very much more aware. You know, as I get older, I get aware of energy. The energy I'm putting out, the energy I'm taking in, sure. the energy I'm letting flow through me, you know, has the right energy um, and is ready to chop wood, right? You know, you, someone that you, you have a feeling is going to really like put their head down, wants to build a business sure. and knowing that it's going to take, you know, the 10,000 hour rule certainly applies in our industry too, right? It's going to take years before you really, really hit your stride in this industry. And somebody has to come in with that mindset. Long -term if they're mindset. coming in with the mindset, like, yeah, I want to be, you know, top producing broker in six months, 12 <laughs> months. It's not realistic, pal, right? Like, you know, so, you know, you, you, someone needs to come in with the right approach that they're going to grind it out. They're going to grind it out no matter what, what the case might be. Got it. Understood. And I want to ask, when hiring people straight out of college, um, you have to spend all the resources and kind of invest into the new hire mm -hmm. um, with no guarantee that it's going to pay off. Mm -hmm. How do you manage that risk as a principal and kind of limit your downside? Well, I think having a manager for our investment sales mm. and our capital services division, Paul McCormick, who's great, you know, recently became a partner, is what's needed there, right? Because Shimon and I, we can't do that, right? right? We can't, you know, shepherd the, the training and, and, and everything else. And Paul has been great, along with Yvonne and everybody else, in establishing a really good training program. Mm. And you're absolutely right. You know, when and that's our risk, right? When we hire somebody, our risk is the resources and bandwidth and effort no that we're gonna put in yeah. for months, for months, and you know, with no guarantees, yeah. right? And and but we do that, we think it's important. Uh, we wanna really set up the people with the right foundation. And the foundation starts with knowledge, mm. right? On the analytical side, then on the sales side, right? Then exposure, right? And exposure with senior guidance, right? And that senior guidance could come from Paul, mm. who's an industry veteran and has seen it, it all, right? But also the individual brokers in the company, right? And you really want to set it up for success because our, our industry is hard, right? Our industry is hard. It's one of the most competitive you know, industries in the world, Definitely. in my opinion, right? So you want to really set up someone as much as you can for success. It doesn't always work, right. but it gives you the best chance that way. Understood. Got it. And let's say someone watching this right now is graduating college this semester and looking to be a commercial real estate broker in New York City and beyond. What property type do you think they should specialize in that has the most potential for growth in the coming decade? I'm a big believer in multifamily. Okay. I think everybody needs a place to live, right? You know, so multifamily to me is always the premier right. asset class. Um, but, uh, I do think, you know, industrial has its merits. I'm not an mm. industrial expert by any, you know, stretch of the imagination, but I think it has its merit. It also depends on what market you're in. Right. right? Like, and, and I would say for that person getting out of college, really study the market and where the trends mm. might be and where the product exists, right? Like you know, not only what the trends would be where, you know, what might be developed here, but what exists, like what product type is out there? Like how many multifamily buildings mm. are there? You know, what? you know, what size are they, right? How many different owners are in your market? Really study that market and then approach, again, as brokers, go to the hotspot, yeah. right? Go to where the action is. Don't try to put a, a circle into a square hole, right? Or, or whatever the case, you know, like, yeah. so research it, think about the product. I love multifamily. You know, I think people will always need a place to live. 
Uh, so I'm always inclined to that, but I think it is market dependent. Understood. Got it. And if you had to go back and do it all over again, start your career again from scratch, how would you go about becoming a legend in this space? Um, I, I think it's hard to, to go back and envision something like that, but uh, you know what? I, I would implement some of the systems and habits that have more come to mind in the past three or four or five years. I would implement them right from the start, right? right? And that would be the major difference, you know, but it's easy to say that once you have the knowledge, sure, yeah. right? And an experience of, of, of living through that, right? But as a young person in the industry, you never know how things are going to work. You never out. know how things, you don't, you don't know what habits you need to build, right? right? Like, and, and that's what I would say. A great book that I read, you know, during the pandemic and to me was a, a life changer for me was Atomic Habits, mm. right? And the idea of incrementally getting better day by day, 1%, if I get better 1% today, I did it, Definitely. right? Like I'm happy. And, you know, I probably would tell my young self to read Atomic Habits is, is one of the things I would say awesome. or other books like that and, and, and get that type of uh, perspective. Awesome. Great. And who do you learn from at this point in your career? Everybody, right? I try to learn from everybody, you know, whether it's clients or attorneys. Uh, attorneys have been a great resource right. for me. You know, uh, Richard, you talk about affordable. Richard Singer in the affordable housing world has been so kind to me with his time and his knowledge. Right. Uh, same thing with clients, you know. I, some of our, our biggest clients, Alan Arker, you know, Ron Molas, Rick Gropper, like they, they're just great resources to to bend their ears sometimes and think about how they view things mm. and et cetera. Um, and, you know, even people outside of our the industry, industry yeah. you learn, you know, you learn from family members. I learned from my parents to this day, right? You know, see, I, I learned from them growing up, right? How to be a parent. Now right. I'm learning from them. How to, you know, I'm not a grandparent yet, but I'm going to learn how, you know, they, sure. they go about being a grandparent, yeah. you know, or, or other people outside of the industry. You meet people in, in, in different walks of life and you can pick up habits from 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 them as well. Like so I'm, I think in general, just being much more open mm. and understanding that, you know, you might have to change your perception sometimes. Sure. Right. And, and somebody I saw a TED talk recently and it was a great TED talk that, you know, the ability to change your mind is like a superpower. Sure. Right. Because we get so stuck in our bias. Right. That it's sometimes hard to see past that. But, you know, taking a step back and taking the big picture and being open to change, sure. I think, is, is, is something that's really important and has become important to me. Definitely. So do you think as a businessman, it's important to be malleable and kind of put your ego aside and realize that there's perspectives outside of your own that you have to adopt? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like adapting to, you know. It's like water to the glass, like yeah. Bruce Lee said, right? <laughs> you know, you want to be malleable, like you said. You want to be open. You, you, you don't want to get in your own way, right? Like, you know, as a young person in this right. industry, I thought I knew already everything, <laughs> right? I didn't know anything, yeah. you know? Like, I, I knew not even one millionth, you know, of, of, of what is necessary or what is out there right. information-wise. So, you know, I, I think what I would also tell young people is that, you know, speak to as many people as you can, right? Get as many perspectives as you can. You know, they, they might have a totally different approach, different, totally different perspective. Their perspective might be jaded and, right. you know, totally skewed, but it's okay. It's just, it's all take information it all gathering. You take it back and you kind of figure out what you want to do with it. 100%, 100%. And what idea do you believe, whether grounded in data or intuition, that many people you respect disagree with you on? Well, that's a great question. Um, I, oh, okay. <laughs> well, not everybody disagrees with this, 
But I think there's a future in rent-stabilized housing okay. in, in New York City. Okay. Right? I, I really do. And I know it's hard for some people to, to, to think that way because of the recent legislation, yeah. especially compounded by rising interest rates and rising expenses. It's, it's, it's a hard, hard business today. But I think, again, everybody needs a place to live. And I think at some point, our legislators will see that some of the laws that were implemented are counterproductive, yeah. right? And there will be a change there. I don't know if it's five years, 10 years, 15 years, you know, but I do think that, you know, at some point uh, there will be some changes and there will be a future there. Right now, again, awesome. it's tough to say, it. you know, some, some buildings, like the problem now is that some of these properties have big loans on them, right? And, don't, and, and when you think about the basis of those loans, they don't have a future, yeah. right? But when it gets reset, it will have a future when laws change, hopefully in the future, um, that'll change as well. Understood. Got it. Uh, what does retirement look like for you? What's retirement? <laughs> um, I think retirement looks to me like spending time only mm. where I want to mm. and what I'm passionate about. You know, I don't think I ever want to totally get out of the business, mm -hmm. right? What I do and, and what I focus on might change, but I think it's in my blood at this point, you know? So whether it's, it's you know, brokering big deals or running a team or investing on deals, right. it will through, until the day I die, right? Commercial real estate will be something that, that I'm awesome. thinking about every day. But when I think about retirement, I think about my kids, right? And I, right. I, I want to see them thriving and I want to be able to support them and any facet that I can. And, and that's what's important. My wife, I want to, you know, like, look, if, if the last few years have taught us anything, it's a balance. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and, you know, we love making money. I love the grind. Right. I, I, and if I didn't love the grind, I wouldn't be in this business. Right. But at the same time, the time with the family is rewarding. Right. And, and that's really what resonates the, the, for the long term, you know, so I want to just ha always have that right balance. You know, I need to, to, to satisfy my deal junkie sure. urges, yeah. right? By always doing something, you know, and, but I need to, to be rewarded, family, yeah. you know, by, by seeing my family and take care of my family. Awesome. Understood. And Victor, I have my final question to wrap it up. You got what some hard questions on them. I'm, <laughs> I'm afraid about your final question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not that bad. Um, what advice would you give your 22 year old self about life, business and relationships? Um, I would tell myself that, um, it's a long game, mm. right? Take it step by step. I would say about relationships that um, be cognizant of what you say, you know, and how it can be taken, right? You know, by, by specific people. And what was that last thing? Life relationships? Life, business, relationships. Uh, business, uh, I would say, you know, find a business that you're passionate about. Mm. And that you enjoy every day, you know, going to work every day. And that's it. Awesome. Great. Victor, this, this has been amazing. And anybody at any point in their career can get value from this and apply this to their careers moving forward. Really appreciate doing this. Thank you, John. It's been appreciate really fun. Thank you. Great.